Welcome to the Untold Civil War Podcast. Since this is the first episode of Season 3, I'd like to take a moment to look back at the past year. It has been a very good year for the podcast, and I want to thank all my Patreon supporters for helping this project grow so quickly. I have met some amazing people, and on the way, I've learned some invaluable lessons. We have launched a website, teamed up with some great sponsors, and are now even looking at selling merchandise to include stickers and hand-painted Civil War tin cups, all brought to you by our sponsor, The Badge Maker. We have also raised enough funds to take the show on the road with the help of our sponsor and good friend of the show, Civil War Trails' very own Drew Gruber. And we will also be exploring so much more in regards to Civil War portrait photography at the Civil War Faces show and sell, thanks to sponsor Ron Coddington of Military Images Magazine. Links to all my sponsors and our new website will be in the show notes. But now, break out your flasks and cigars. We finally have another Civil War whiskey tasting. So cheers to you, my pards. Let's toast some untold Civil War. Welcome to another untold Civil War whiskey tasting. And I'm here with Colin Spoolman, the man behind the curtain over there at Kings County Distillery. He's also published, I believe, three books on the topic. Uh, he's actually th- er, co-authored two books, two books, two books, two books. Two yeah. books? Okay. Uh, two he's actually located books. in the, uh, Brooklyn Navy Yard or the distillery is located over there where I believe the ironclad, the monitor was made, which is a neat civil war connection. Uh, I know you're into whiskey distilling history, so had to have you on really appreciate you coming on. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Paul. All right. So if we could just kick it off. How did you get into distilling and how did Kings County Distillery come about? Sure. So um, I grew up in eastern Kentucky, um, kind of more the uh, coal mining Appalachian moonshine part of Kentucky, as opposed to the bluegrassy bourbon part of Kentucky. Um, But once I moved to New York, everybody would kind of (laughs) poke me about bourbon And I would say, you know, I'm not really from that part of Kentucky. I'm from the moonshine part. And people would say, what is moonshine? How do you, what is that? You know, there was a lot of instant curiosity around moonshine. And so I was always interested in distilling it. I mean, traveling back to Kentucky, I would bring moonshine back up to New York City. But I was also interested in learning how to actually distill and be sort of a, a home hobby distiller. And so that's really how I came to it from the home distillation side of it, which is, has been a federal crime since 1862. It was actually during the Civil War that the excise law was passed on distilled spirits. And it's really that tax that we continue to pay to this day. So ever from, it's from 1862 forward in American history, it's been illegal to have a still for your own, to make any spirits at home. And so not wanting to necessarily get into trouble by doing what I was doing, uh, looked into what it would take to get a commercial distiller's license. And then in 2010, Kings County Distillery opened as the first distillery in New York City since Prohibition. And really the first craft whiskey distillery in the city and uh, we're probably the largest distillery in the city so why why new york city how did why did you choose new york city particularly <laughs> well i lived there so you just lived there that was the easy <laughs> you know, way right uh, okay yeah i mean right no it was it was not necessarily i looked all around the country and said what what place needs a distillery although right. for the longest time kentucky and tennessee were 
really the only places in the United States where there was any volume of distilling being done. And it's only really been in the last 10 to 15 years that distilling has expanded to places like New York and California and other parts of the South. So really, you know, what's been going on in terms of craft spirits is a fairly recent thing. Craft beer and, and small wineries have been around since the 80s, but craft spirits are really kind of the result of legal changes throughout many states that have been happening over the last decade. Uh, or last two decades, we could say. So kind of because of being in Brooklyn and kind of having this cultural heritage from some other place, you know, it's not the first time that somebody had moved to Brooklyn and then, oh, rediscovered this culture that they had come from and wanted to express it in the city. So um, by kind of taking this Kentucky thing and adapting it for a New York audience, that's really kind of how Kings County has evolved and started it with my business partner, David Haskell, who uh, was a college friend and is now the editor at New York Magazine. So kind of both of us were very interested in New York City and its history and its opportunity for not just being a place where there's a restaurant culture, obviously there's a great food and drink culture in New York City, but also a why shouldn't there be distilling that happens in New York since we have so many great breweries and wineries, why not also distilleries? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And this is definitely one of my favorites. Every time I go down to Virginia and I meet my buddies down there, I always bring a bottle of Kings County um, mm -hmm. as sort of a taste of New York City nice. for them. Good, good. You know, <laughs> and they love it. I, when I told right. them I was actually having you on and I, I took a picture of the selection, I think the first comment was, uh, oh, that's a dangerous bottle. <laughs> so they've had some fun nights with uh, that bottle. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> But uh, you kind of started bringing up a little bit about sort of the Civil War era and whiskey history. Could you get into a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I, a lot of people think of American whiskey as something that exclusively has always come from Kentucky. And that is a, a complete myth. I mean, Kentucky certainly has dominated the last hundred years since the end of Prohibition. But really, the early history of distilling absolutely had a lot to do with the big northeastern cities, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Baltimore. That's where the distilleries were. And it was only really after the Civil War where the distilleries moved into the Midwest, the Ohio River Valley. There were always small distilleries in Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana. But it was really after the Civil War that you start to see the commercialization of the Midwest and the South as, as a place where we're spirit made. So you have to imagine nearly all the whiskey before the Civil War is coming from a place like Brooklyn. And there were huge distilleries in Brooklyn, many of them uh, set up by Irish immigrants, and but also German and Scottish and a lot of European cultures that were fleeing excise tax. So obviously there were things that were going on in, in each of the countries that were, people were coming from. But the United States, because of the Whiskey Rebellion and George Washington's presidency, we didn't actually have a tax on distilled spirits. So if you were a whiskey distiller, you could actually recover more, you know, you could make more money off of your whiskey because you didn't owe the government anything from your whiskey making. And so many, many immigrants came and built distilleries and, and kind of brought that tradition. Then, of course, the Civil War changed everything because, as I was saying, the tax uh, was kind of this emergency wartime provision, and it really made whiskey much more expensive, and people just continued to make whiskey and not pay their taxes. And so the period after the Civil War is this very fascinating moment in, in particular in New York's history, because 
uh, you have a lot of Irish moonshiners who are kind of refusing to pay their excise tax. And the federal government would send these raiding parties uh, known as the Whiskey Wars or this, this kind of conflict between the Irish distillers and the, the federal government became known as the Whiskey Wars. And, and they ended violently. One of the gaugers, one of the revenue officers was actually shot and killed right outside the Brooklyn Navy Yard where he was completing a raid on an wow. illegal distillery. Yeah, so really right. The, the place where the distillery is located in on the sort of Dumbo side, Vinegar Hill side of the Brooklyn Navy Yard was historically called Irish Town. It was a very heavily a lot of dock workers and you know ship freight uh, longshoremen kinds of trades that went on there so it was kind of a you know sort of tough neighborhood a lot of people kind of crammed into small dwellings and it was very easy for distillers to kind of hide their operations and so a lot of the descriptions of what went on in that era were people who were really kind of trying to hide their distilleries from the federal government and then after Clinton Gilbert was shot and killed that was the moment at which uh, you know, there was a there was a broader push for kind of more significant regulation in the industry, um, but also there was a broader push for temperance. So the temperance movement really kind of traces back to the idea that distillers weren't just making this moral poison, you know, <laughs> all, but also they were kind of cheating the federal government out of money that they that the government needed to to rebuild for reconstruction. All of these kind of things that would have to happen after the Civil War and that would cost money. So, uh, you know, it was a very kind of complicated era. Obviously, uh, you also had a sort of the draft riots and Irish immigrants were viewed very differently in that era than, than in, in later times. And so in the ways that the Civil War was being fought in, the, in, in New York City, distillers were absolutely in the middle of that as um, it tended to be a lot of immigrants and, and they tended to be in opposition for whatever reason, not for the same reasons as the Confederacy, but just in opposition to the Union. So, or let's say in opposition to the Republican government. Right, so right. all of that kind of played out on the streets of Brooklyn and, and in and Manhattan as well. But the dispute over whiskey tax was really just one little urban flashpoint that was happening during the greater conflict that was the Civil War. Do we happen to know, I mean, this there may not be an answer for this, but do we know what the whiskeys back then tasted like compared to what we have today, what we're used to today? Right. Um, it can be very hard to ascertain. Right. Um, yeah. you know, people weren't publishing their recipes. And in fact, the word whiskey probably referred to any distilled spirit. Okay, um, yeah. That wasn't, that wasn't brandy, you know, there were people who are probably making it from sugar and calling it whiskey, which um, which we would call rum today, but um, right, right, you know, they would probably take a sort of corn and, and rye mix, and maybe they'd throw in sugar because they knew that it would help the fermentation and make it sort of boost the alcohol percentage. So it, we do know, on the other hand, that a lot of the whiskey was sold unaged, and the idea of common whiskey or whiskey that hadn't really gone through the aging process which has never had a good word in our culture today. We kind of call it moonshine or, or white whiskey is kind of an alternative word for it, but it's just the, the unaged spirit that will eventually become or rye whiskey if it gets put into a barrel. So, um, so that was the common whiskey. And then it was always known that aging whiskey would make valuable more um, possibly, you know, improving it in the way that some of the volatile and kind of harsh components of the alcohol would kind of mellow out over time. 
and the spirit would pick up the sugars from the barrel itself. So the sap and the caramelized sap of the tree would give the whiskey this beautiful brown color. And um, so aged whiskeys were popular, but the way that they orchestrated the tax, you had to pay for the tax before you aged the whiskey. And sometimes you lost a lot of whiskey during the aging. An eventual thing that happens is some of the whiskey will evaporate out of the barrel. And that's right, called the right. angel's share. So some you know, distillers had very little incentive to age their whiskey if to 20% of it was just going to evaporate out. Right, disappear in the Eventually they Right. Eventually they changed the rules and then they changed the rules again. And then they extended the period under which you could hold the whiskey in a warehouse before you owed tax. And for a long time, that was eight years. And then eventually it was bumped up to 20 years in, I think, the 50s and the 1950s and 1960s. So, you know, the, the whole relationship between how you tax whiskey and then how you make whiskey from a production point of view have always been a little bit at odds with each other. Chances are the cheap whiskey, the kind of common whiskey, would have been unaged. And in some cases, adulterated with, you know, flavors that were added, like, wood shavings, uh, tobacco juice, <laughs> you know, formaldehyde, you know, all these sort of horrible things that were diluting the whiskey, you know, kind of uh, adulterate, making it sort of seem a little bit like whiskey, but but made pretty inexpensively because aged whiskey was what people wanted, the, the long age whiskey as they still do today. Right, right. And, you know, you obviously have a great product here. So I'm going to ask you the, the big question here. In your opinion, what makes a good whiskey? <laughs> well, um, I mean, that depends because people measure whiskeys in different ways. Right. Um, certainly anybody would first answer that question by saying it has to be old. It has to be aged for a long time. Mm. And that certainly can help make whiskey more fun <laughs> and more expensive. But, you know, for us, I would say one thing that we do as a distillery that's probably comparable to what was happening in a Civil War era distillery is we use pot stills. And there's kind of two big types of distillation. One is called an alembic or a pot still. And if you've seen pictures of single malt distilleries in Scotland, they have these kind of copper Hershey's sort of shaped right, um, right. vessels that are very look very old fashioned. Whereas in American whiskey, people use column stills, which is just a 1830s invention that does sort of multiple distillations in one pass and saves the distiller time, but arguably takes away some of the character of the whiskey. So as a hobbyist, I always gravitated to the, um, the pot still. And then as we've scaled up as a commercial distillery, using pot stills has always been really important to me. Using good ingredients, organic grain from New York State is a big part of the whiskey that we make. So uh, ingredients, process, and then age not to say that age is necessarily better, but really having somebody who really understands whiskey generally and understands the whiskey that you're trying to make in particular, tasting the whiskey at the end of it to determine what's good or bad. You know, I mean, ultimately, right. the best whiskey is made by human beings who know how to make good whiskey. <laughs> yes. <know>? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it would be easy to say, well, you need a this kind of machine or it has to age right, for right. many years, et cetera, et cetera. But very often it's having somebody who can sort of, you know, taste the difference between good and bad and, mm -hmm. and use that. And, you know, just to talk about uh, your specific whiskey, uh, your brand here, it's, it's New York city through and or New York, I should say through and through, right? Yeah. I mean, that's um, a lot of the sort of 
the, the open secret in American whiskey is that actually there's very few distilleries in the United States that have any capacity to produce. And most of those are ones that you kind of know by name, Jim Beam, Jack Daniel, there, there are Baker's Mark, there's a few others in Kentucky. And more often than not, they're producing a lot of branded whiskey and they're producing a lot of generic whiskey. It's kind of all the same stuff. And then there's a big aftermarket for the generic whiskey of buying those barrels and then rebranding them. And so one thing that was always important to me is, oh, we're actually gonna make the whiskey from scratch. We're gonna do it in our particular way, again, using pot stills and organic state ingredients and really designing a whiskey that is representative of New York state. And we really didn't have that in New York state until, you know, say, I guess maybe 20 years ago was when the first New York whiskey was ever even contemplated. That was upstate and a few years before we got started, but not, not very long before we got started. So I think New York distillers have the opportunity to kind of articulate and discover what, what New York state whiskey could could be and should be. And one of the things that I'm most excited about is this project called Empire Rye. And New York State's deep history with, with whiskey was a rye whiskey. And so as bourbon grew in popularity, rye was originally popular. And then around 18, I want to say 1880, bourbon took over, corn-based whiskey took, took over and became more popular. And they were kind of neck and neck until prohibition. And then after prohibition, bourbon has increasingly been more popular until about 20 years ago. And then as classic cocktails have kind of made a resurgence, older cocktail manuals kind of popped up and there's been a sort of retro kind of approach to cocktail making. Rye has really had a comeback. All of those uh, Pennsylvania distillers that were most known for the brands like Overholt and Shenley and Michter's, they all got sold off to Kentucky companies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. None of those rye distilleries exist anymore. So to be able to kind of reinvent and, and kind of do a historical style of rye whiskey within the place in which it was first known for is kind of a great opportunity. So Empire Rye is a New York state specific designation that just means it's made from 75% rye grain that's grown in New York and distilled in New York. That's yeah. the ways in which we're kind of, you know, being a New York whiskey, as opposed to like just making a Kentucky bourbon. Just right. In right. That's great. That's great. And I really want to try these now. <laughs> so um, I got, I got a bunch here to try. Okay. <laughs> uh, this is, you know, I got to try these. So we've got, uh, which, which ones uh, would you recommend starting with well i would start with both of the unaged whiskeys okay i would start probably with the the one that's called the moonshine the, the moonshine whiskey. yep i got that here so what's the story behind this one so most countries in the eu it's illegal to make something called whiskey that's less than three years old but american law has always had a carve out for something called corn whiskey which is just it it traces its history back to that common whiskey that we were talking about that civil war era history and there's always been this kind of cultural perception that, that corn whiskey is really the pure American whiskey. And it's clean. okay. And bourbon has certainly evolved to take a place of prominence, much larger place of prominence. But ask any old timer in the 1920s. <laughs> then, right. You know, they would have said, oh, it's really corn whiskey. That's corn what, whiskey you know, and, and corn cob pipes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it, yeah it has that kind of like log cabin frontier sort of flavor that you know is, is kind of out of fashion now maybe had a little bit of a, a resurgence around the time we got started in, in 2010 but 
I thought was kind of ripe for rediscovery because if you remove age is the very age again is the sort of first variable that right anybody would say makes good whiskey but if you remove that variable then what makes good whiskey and yeah. you know that that is the question that i think this spirit happens to answer through its presentation so anyway i'll let you okay yeah <laughs> cheers cheers oh i like that <laughs> yeah it's That's kind really of fiery good. but it's got a very like bright corn you know you it's it's not vodka i mean that's that's what it sort of looks yeah. like and what you would first want to compare it to but vodka is distilled to a very neutral character so it's just really the pure alcohol and water yeah um, whereas this contains a little bit of the oils and characteristics from the grain which it comes from it's clear like a vodka but there was a lot more going on in the uh in that bottle than uh than a vodka i, I think you know when i tasted it there was a lot right. more flavor you know this is the first one that we got started with at Kings County. Inevitably, when you're making whiskey and you want to have a one-year-old or a two-year-old whiskey, you have to wait yes. one year or two years to be able to bottle it. So this was something that we could come out with while we were waiting for some of the whiskey to age. Ah, uh, okay. So you probably had plans for other things that were going on, but in order to release something a little bit sooner, this was the first right. released one. Okay. And and it's just, yes. yeah, the the... the rye whiskey or the, the white rye yeah is just good i mean it would be very reductive to call this south and north but um certainly maryland and above was rye whiskey and virginia and down was corn whiskey okay and so this is kind of a way to to uh, rye rye grows better in a northern climate and um corn grows well pretty much anywhere but but was more off in the south yeah. so yeah maybe maybe um not 100%, but maybe the Union soldiers were drinking uh, the rye and the Confederates were drinking the corn. Right, right. We can go with that for the sake of... <laughs> for simplifying I everything. I don't think it's actually wrong to say that historically, but... Yeah. So I'm going to try the, the rye whiskey. Yes, I have that as well here. So I'm actually curious. I haven't had these next to each other in a while, so I'm kind of... Oh, all right. This is an opportunity for me to kind of revisit these in a, in a different context, too. Hmm. So, I, I mean, from this one, I get a little less of that sort of bright, sweet cornness. Right. And this is has a more like grassy, kind of earthy characteristic to it. Yes. Rye is actually a little uh, more finicky to distill. It's uh, corn gives you a high yield. You know, it's just it's it's very easy to make a lot of whiskey with with corn. Okay. Rye is a gummier grain to work with. That was the whiskey that yeah brought over from from old country that was you know uh, Germany and Ireland and Scotland. But, and the corn uh, and rye are coming from upstate. I'm assuming. In both of the, yeah, in these, in, in our case, yes. Yeah, okay. Um, corn comes from the Finger Lakes and, and the rye comes from the, the um, Hudson Valley. How, how does that work? Did you just uh, go up to the guys growing that and say, hey, I got this big plan. You mind helping me out here? Or how did that, how did you bring that up? <laughs> well, the, our corn supplier we've been using for a long time, like organic grain. And okay. um, we were buying like 50 pound sacks, very small volumes from them. I mean, that sounds like a lot, but <laughs> in, from a distiller's point of view, it's not very much. And now we buy 25 tons at a time in a big tractor trailer that just comes and, and dumps it all in the silo. So on the corn side, it was actually a little bit easier because corn is a, is a subsidized crop and, and organic corn is, is popular animal feed. So there was a lot of people growing it and it was not that hard to come by. Whereas rye is less... It's grown as a cover crop, sometimes almost just as a way to kind of reset a field or, or to 
do something with it in the winter. And so not as many people are growing that commercially. And so it was a little bit harder to find that farmer. But on the other hand, because people are growing it as a cover crop, sort of, oh, surprised by the sudden commercial potential of what they would otherwise just be growing kind of as a way to reset their fields. Was the rye sort of the same as the corn in the sense that this was another one you could release a little bit early? This one actually came a little bit later. I, oh, okay. I uh, for, for the reasons that rye was sort of hard to make, right. I avoided making it for, for a few years. And then when the idea to do the New York style, the Empire Rye came around, then we kind of got deeply into aging that. And then we thought, well, let's, it'll be informative to kind of have the unaged slip so people can kind of compare that. Yeah. Just right. as we're doing now, it's, it's right, exactly. kind of understand where it comes from. And then when you try the age version, it'll all make a little bit more sense. This one was, was maybe more as a teaching tool than a, okay. something we expected people expected. to yeah. buy and drink you know, for fun. Now, uh, you did send me the Empire Rye here, but I also had the straight bourbon whiskey. So I didn't know if you wanted to try that one right. as well. or So that's probably the sort of next phase of the tasting that we should do is just okay. then revisit the aged versions of, yeah. the, of the unaged distillate. So... We could do that now or let's let's yeah. do the empire rye then so we can keep the that taste the unaged taste and it's sure. perfect yeah so this is the empire rye king's county distillery straight rye whiskey and how long do they age uh do you age these so the the barrels that go into the rye are aged anywhere from two to four years and in for the bourbon it's like three to five years so the rye actually matures a little bit faster um that's probably true of a big commercial distillery as well. I don't know that that's necessarily because rye tastes better when it's younger or, or reaches peak maturity faster, or whether because there's been so little rye in the United States and it's become so popular. Mm, um, right, that, right. You know, people are just trying to, you know, they'll, they'll be able to sell it younger and people will appreciate it at a younger age. So it's hard to know what's cultural and what's a function of the market and what's the function of the law. All of these different pieces go together to create, you know, what people care about and, and like in whiskey. Sometimes it's legal things that like the bonding period. Uh, sometimes it's cultural things like just certain things available, which makes them more desirous. Yeah. And, you know, very old bourbon is currently, if you can find any, you can charge pretty much any price for it. Even though historically bourbon was never aged beyond, you know, nine years was probably the maximum age statement you'd ever see on a bourbon. Whereas, you know, scotch is sort of in the 12 to 18 year range. And so bourbon has always felt, well, those numbers are so much larger than our six to nine year range that we do for our bourbon. Maybe we should <laughs> try to make a bourbon that's as old as the scotch. But it, it's, it's the aging process is very different. The climate is very different. Right. You know, the, the idea that bourbon should try to be like scotch is a little bit of a, a cultural sort of thing going on. Right, right, right. Oh, we, we can enjoy bourbon for being bourbon. So shall we uh, try this here? Empire Rye. Yeah, go ahead. I don't, I don't have the rye in front of me. Or the oh, okay. Oh, no, here I do. I have the rye. So this is 80% rye and 20% malted barley. And okay. that's true of all the whiskeys. They're, they're 80% of the base grain and then 20% malted barley. So barley is just barley, but malting means that they've, the seeds have been allowed to germinate a little bit, which is part of the production process for whiskey. And so by letting the seeds sprout there, you actually create, or, or there's enzymes in the germinating grain that can convert starch to sugar. And that's what we're going to use to turn something that's 
very starchy into something very sweet for the sake of fermentation. Right. Yeah, this one this one is probably our most desired whiskey and the one that we have the smallest availability of it. Um, I, I can see why. <laughs> so this is it was very good. And so wow, that is very good. <laughs> uh, and, and this is it. I don't think I, to be honest with you, I don't think I've ever tasted anything quite like that before. Right. And I'm, I'm glad you said that because it actually, you've probably ever never really had rye whiskey. Yeah. That was once made. A lot of the commercial rye whiskeys like Old Overholt or Rittenhouse or Sazerac, it's, they're made in bourbon distilleries in Kentucky that right. spend you know, three or four days out of the year making rye whiskey. So um, they tend to have a lot of corn content because corn is cheaper than rye. They tend to be column distilled. They are all column distilled and don't have this the buttery sort of farmy flavor that, that a traditionally made rye whiskey has. Right. So this is a great introduction to kind of what rye whiskey probably used to be like before kind of the current era. And again, what years are we talking about? Um, well, let's say that the, yeah, yeah. The heyday of rye whiskey would have been, you know, the, the founding, the colonies, wow, in okay. so much as there was whiskey being consumed. But let's say after the sort of British triangular trade in rum, okay. where there were a lot of rum distilleries in the colonies, then after the Revolutionary War, we really switched flavor and production to whiskey. And so let's say Revolutionary War II, 1880 would have been rye dominant, and the distilleries that made the whiskey were more likely in the Northeast. Then you have this switch to the Ohio River Valley and corn-based whiskeys, and kind of from that moment forward. And then rye as a commercial whiskey really was available, but dwindled down to about 300,000 cases 20 years ago. And the American whiskey market is 44 million cases. I don't know what that is as a percentage, but it's a very yeah. small percentage of, of what's being sold as American whiskey. So it's only been now we're probably at like two or three million cases worth of rye whiskey being made each year, but that's a huge resurgence from a place of almost extinction in the 1980s. Yeah. And I will say that it is distinctly different from the non-aged rye that you have. Yes. Right. right. It's, it is very different. So it's kind of amazing to see that transition. Yeah. So much more like caramel, butterscotch, mm -hmm. um, and the sort of oak sap of the barrel gives you just that kind of vanilla richness uh, that you associate with any aged spirit that's cognac or scotch or right. American whiskey. Even some rums have that kind of characteristic to them. Uh, again, it's are, are you improving the whiskey or are you just creating kind of a different sort of thing through aging it? Um, this is certainly more familiar and more marketable. Right. right. More approachable. And for, maybe. you know, again, my, my podcast isn't necessarily... A, a primarily whiskey tasting podcast, you know, I cater to a wider range right, of right. buffs. So maybe you can explain a little bit of that, like everything you just mentioned, that butterscotch, and that's not actually in there. It's not like you poured that in there, right? Right. So that right. comes from the barrel or? It comes from the, it comes exclusively from the barrel. Right. So the only ingredients in this whiskey are, are rye grain, barley grain, yeast, and oak barrel, and thyme and New York City tap water. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> which makes the best uh, pizza, one. right? That's that's the key to our <laughs> right, pizza. Right. Well, <laughs> I, you know, it's funny at the Brooklyn Distillery, we used to get a lot of kind of blowback from you know, are you taking your water from the East River? But a lot of people don't realize that New York City's water comes from Catskills. And oh yeah, pristine reservoir. Yeah, and and in terms of having water, having grown up in Kentucky, 
I would far sooner take New York City tap water than any tap water in the state of Kentucky, yeah. just knowing ultimately where those headwaters run to or coal mines and, you know, who knows. Right, right. Because in New York City, you, you have a very protected watershed. So it's an interesting kind of cultural mythology that comes around whiskey. But yeah, it's a very old process of, of making. There's nothing different about really the way that whiskey is made today versus the Civil War era. Maybe you have a little bit of a different type of still. Maybe your fermenters have different cooling capabilities. Maybe there's some enzymes and some technology that goes into the bioengineering of it. But fundamentally, you're not. it's not as different as many other types of food products. It, it really is very similar. Now, don't forget we also have a YouTube channel. On there, you will actually get to see myself and my good friend Tony manager of a local craft liquor and wine store, taste Kings County, Old Overholt, and Copper Sea Whiskies. You'll get to see our raffle drawing and some new products which will be for sale on the website. Use the link in the show notes to check out the channel and don't forget to subscribe to it. So I, I do have to ask this. This is maybe a little off topic, a little different. I've never mm -hmm. seen a bottle quite like this either. Where did uh, that design come from? Well, so many whiskey brands. I was kind of saying, you know, like the illusion of, of American whiskey is that there's all these different brands and distilleries that are out there when there really are just a handful that are making a lot of different bottles. Right. And it's the same whiskey going into multiple different bottles. So one thing that was very important to me starting the distillery was to have a bottle that really reflected the fact that we are distillers. Everything that we do is played out in the whiskeys that we make. And it's less about the branding and the imagery and the story. And it's really more to foreground the whiskey itself. So the fact that we have two whiskeys that are kind of parallel in their production, and then we have two aged whiskeys that are parallel to the unaged whiskeys is very much by design. And the hope is that the labels will kind of articulate the simplicity of that. And, and like the cap color determines the primary ingredient. So we have mm -hmm. silver caps for corn and gold caps for rye. And then we also have black caps here for barley-based whiskeys. Okay. So there's a little bit of a sort of logic behind kind of everything that works out in the kind of the very straightforward labels. And I'm not, are, you know. I'm not advocating for it, but it looks like it can fit nicely in a pocket too, so. <laughs> right. Well, that might have also been yeah. a little bit of an idea too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, th this is really neat because uh as you said that your bottles don't really try to do the whole like oh we're gonna find a story and image i think the story is what's inside the bottle and that's clearly what you're you're all about is that it's the uh the quality of the content uh inside the bottle you know and that's mm -hmm. the story and and when i look at it uh, coming from like the history perspective i think this looks like something you would have seen back then I mean, I, I can't tell you mm -hmm. if that's exactly what it was, but that does look something like something you'd pull off the pharmacy shelf or something, you know? Right, um, right. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, kind of just, uh, well, part of it is the size, you know, for one thing, we were a small distillery when we got started. Another thing is that New Yorkers are always on foot, so you don't necessarily want to bring a huge bottle from the liquor store. Yeah, right. That was a piece of what was going on and, and probably has, a, you know, goes back to pre-car, pre-suburb area era of of production so you know there's a lot of things that are kind of at work underneath the surface that 
our subconscious almost in a way, but, but make a logical sense. Being that I'm, you know, I live in Queens and I'm from Queens here, you know, this is something that I, I got to say, you know, you, you use ingredients from New York, continue that New York tradition in your distilling process. You've got a bottle that <laughs> caters to the pedestrian New Yorker because, you know, we all walk everywhere. <laughs> I mean, this is, right, this is a right. New York whiskey right here. This is New York, a New York yeah. brand through and through. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, not, not to be contrarian about it, you know. I no, mean, no, absolutely that, not. Yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. nice to see something unique though. Uh, in this right. case, like, like you were saying, you know, you have the craft beer and so on and so forth. It's nice to have another option, you know, on the, on the table. And people, I think when you, you have a, a, a like Brooklyn brewery, you know, is, is, it adds a lot to the feeling of what a place is, you know, just like, right. you know, the Yankees and the Mets, Brooklyn Brewery, you want, we, we would like to be a part of the city first and foremost, and to make whiskey first for our neighbors. And if people beyond become interested in it, that's great too. You know, I, I, I want to appeal as much to the whiskey can, you know, nerd in California as I do to guys down you know, at the fire station down the street who come by and are, oh, absolutely. are always kind of checking up on things, but uh, can I grab a bottle? Yeah, yeah. Like I said before, when I was going to visit my friends in Virginia and my buddy here, he owns uh, one of the, the wine stores slash liquor store, runs one of the wine stores, liquor store local. And so I, I walked mm -hmm. up to him and I told him, I said, listen, you know, I'm going down to Virginia. I'd like to get something for my buddy there that's unique to New York that, you know, you can kind of get here that talks about New York, tells the New York story as a gift, as a housewarming gift because he's in Virginia. And he admitted to me, he said, well, to be honest with you, uh, New York wines are crap. That, that was his opinion. He <laughs> You know, right, right. Um, yeah. You know, I don't want to uh, tick off all those long, long Island wineries, but uh, that was his opinion. But he pointed me into uh, the Kings County distillery direction. And uh, mm -hmm. it was a home run. man. It was a home run yeah, when I brought right, that right. over. So that it really is. It's I would recommend if people are going to give gift baskets or you want to give something sort of a unique New York City gift to somebody that's a good whiskey. Absolutely. Look no further. <laughs> But of course, we do have one more that I'd love to taste here with you is the, the straight bourbon whiskey. This is our most popular whiskey, and bourbon is the, the most popular kind of American whiskey, has been for 100 years, more than 100 years. And is though associated with Kentucky, there's no clear historical link. There's a bourbon county in Kentucky that was well known for growing corn in the 1820s, 30s, 40s. So, and to go down river from Bourbon County, you will end up in the Ohio River, and we eventually get to New Orleans, where a lot of whiskey was sort of traded uh, on Bourbon Street. So that may be another place that it gets its its name from. But but the more credible history is, I think, um, that it comes from Bourbon County in Kentucky, which was kind of used to refer to the Appalachian kind of part of the state, the part of the state that I'm I'm actually from. So no eventually, bias there. Well, you know, <laughs> eventually Bourbon County got subdivided and subdivided and it got smaller and smaller. And Bourbon County today has, hasn't had a distillery, a bourbon distillery for a hundred years. There is a new craft distillery that has opened in Bourbon County maybe about eight years ago. But, you know, this idea that bourbon has to come from Bourbon County is, is either a myth or something that's just very, very old and doesn't quite apply anymore. And, and most of the distilleries in Kentucky are in the bluegrass, kind of Lexington, Louisville, horse racing, kind of that part of the state of Kentucky now. Bourbon, you know, there's no 
reason to really lead with bourbon other than that's what I grew up around and what I liked and sort of what you know I thought people would be interested in and that's kind of why we made a bourbon and and it's not a surprise that it's our most popular whiskey because it's the most accessible thing that we make. This is a very different bourbon from a Kentucky bourbon in the sense that it's pot distilled and we don't use any rye grain or wheat grain in the whiskey. We just use corn and barley, which is a little unusual. And then it's, you know, it's a little bit younger maybe than a Kentucky bourbon. This is a, again, three to five year barrels in that range, whereas Kentucky might be four to seven or eight for a kind of mid-range bourbon. Um, we do make some older bourbons. We have a four year and a seven year, but this is kind of our, our flagship. And, and again, what's most, most popular by about half of what we sell is this, is this bourbon. Definitely reminds <laughs> me, you know, it's, it, it reminds me of a bourbon. Yeah. Yeah. The, the rye has a like sort of minty kind of grassy characteristic, but the corn is just big, bold, caramel, vanilla, yeah. Christmas spice, like nutmeg. I mean, they're all just different, you know, different yeah. ways of getting into American whiskey and all have a place in American whiskey's history. So for, I guess oh, for yeah. that reason, you know, they, they all belong. You know, it's just a question of what do you, what do you gravitate to? And oh, absolutely. Age whiskeys are certainly more for kind of sipping you know, as a, as a after dinner kind of in front of the fireplace, kind of cold day kind of situation. Well, so that was one of my questions I was going to ask you, are these meant to be uh, drunk neat or in a cocktail or how, how do mm -hmm. you recommend this? I know you kind of just mentioned sitting by the fire on a winter night, but uh, in general, right. <laughs> Uh, I mean, you can drink. I, I, the way that I drink whiskey is neat in the winter and with ice in the summer because yeah. just who wants to, you know, why not? But there's no reason I don't, I mean, I'm into cocktails and I, w w when you come to visit the distillery, we do have a lot of great cocktails that we make in our tasting room and, and I've gotten to appreciate them kind of more after becoming, starting that side of our business. So I don't think there's any right way or wrong way to do it. I think as the whiskey gets more expensive, there's just, you know, you, you may appreciate it a little bit less than a cocktail. So right, right. generally I sort of favor putting the, the middle grade stuff into cocktails and saving the, the fancy stuff for, for drinking on its own, if you like that. But, you know, some people buy our most expensive whiskey and they go make brownies with it and cook, <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> I'm just happy that people are getting it and appreciating it. And so, you know. How did you I'm, learn I'm about really, that? I'm Someone told finish. you about that one? Well, people post it on Instagram oh. and you see it and you're kind of like, oh. <laughs> but I just lament the loss of, of the opportunity to taste it neat, but not everybody likes it that way. So I, I would I would never put my own way of consuming something as a, in Scotland, they tend to add water to whiskey as a part of the way that they drink it. We don't necessarily do that in the U.S. So it's just a, again, just kind of a cultural thing. Right. Right. So uh, another thing I wanted to bring up here too is, you know, you're, you were in New York city, I'm assuming with the COVID and everything like that. Did you get into uh, hand sanitizer? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when the pandemic hit, I mean, obviously everybody was just very, you know, scared, anxious. And one thing that we knew as distillers is kind of a joke to us that we make this stuff that's, <laughs> that we drink as fine whiskey, but it's, it's no different than the chemical that goes into gasoline. It's no different than the chemical that you can use to, to sanitize your hands. And in fact, the World Health Organization publishes a recipe for if you have ethanol, this is a way to make hand sanitizer. 
glycerin and hydrogen peroxide. Initially, we, we didn't want to do anything because it felt sort of like kind of capitalizing on a, or right. you know, sort of taking advantage right. of, a, of a public health moment that didn't need us. But when we learned that hospitals were actually running short on hand sanitizer and, and potential workers and emergency responders, then we did actually end up uh, starting to distill hand sanitizer. And then there were a lot of breweries around the city that had all these beer kegs in restaurants that were going out of, you know, that weren't going to get drunk. And so a lot of those went back to the breweries and then they came to us to get distilled into beer. So uh, distilled into, you know, hand sanitizer from beer. And in those cases, we would just split the sanitizer, give the half of it to the brewery for them to distribute. We took our half and distributed so that we could get, you know, make the most of that stuff that was going to otherwise just go to waste. Yeah. You know, uh, when I was at work, we kind of laughed. We said, I think this is the first time the supervisors aren't going to ask us why we smell like tequila and uh, whiskey, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. You know. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. A lot of people, you know, we, we, uh, we made it available on our website on a pay, pay what you wish basis. And so a lot of people caught it. They're like, this, this smells like whiskey. Yeah. Like, what did you think? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not Purell over here. Hey, it, we're, it, as, far yeah. I'm, as far as I'm concerned, that's the best scented uh, um, hand sanitizer out yeah. there, you know? Uh, yeah. So we actually got placed on some like best of lists of, you know, fun sanitizers that you can buy. Yeah. Um, and you know, that helped us actually pivot because what we were really doing also is going from being an in-person business that does tours and tastings on site to being an e-commerce business and trying to keep the business alive by distributing ourselves to, to customers. So in addition to kind of <coughs> supporting the liquor stores and making sure they had hand sanitizer and had enough product to sell, we were also kind of doing some you know, new releases and virtual tastings and things just to keep our own direct business uh, strong. And as a result, we didn't, I, I can't say we didn't furlough anybody, but you know, we kept as many people on as we possibly could. And I think that had, you know, had we not done hand sanitizer, we wouldn't have been able to do that. Had we not done virtual tastings and some of the e-commerce, we couldn't have done that. So it, it was a way to survive, basically. Fantastic. Fantastic. And uh, I definitely would recommend to anyone who's visiting New York City to, uh, you know, to head over to Kings County Distillery and uh, check that out. Yeah. And I, I would I would also say the people who are into history and not necessarily into whiskey, we still do. The, we have a great tour that goes into um, very specifically the history of distilling in New York City, which, again, most people kind of never gave much thought to whether or right. not that even existed. And in fact, there, there is this great history. We, we didn't get into it, but there's kind of a prohibition era where Al Capone was born right near us uh, in, in Vinegar Hill. There is this sort of great continuity of, of American whiskey distillers and the sort of illegal distillers and the criminal operators <laughs> and legitimate operators that kind of that navigated this part of American history, which is which is kind of interesting and great to have so close to us. So how can people uh, learn more about uh, you, get access to Kings County Distillery uh, and the two books you've uh, authored? How can people do that? So uh, you can go to our website, kingscountydistillery.com, and obviously we would love to have you visit. That's a, that's a great way to, to, to get started. We also have published a couple books, one of which is called Dead Distillers, which is exclusively a history book of, of whiskey and distillation, but also the Guide to Urban Moonshining, which is a little more of a 
sort of, uh, if you were curious, if you wanted to make your own whiskey, you could use that book to kind of walk through the steps of being a home distiller. But there's a lot of stuff that relates to kind of understanding the, the history and culture of whiskey too, that um, is a little less of distilling and more about just whiskey generally. So those are good ways to, to, to get to know our whiskeys, but, but really the best way, if, if you can't do either of those, is just to pick up a bottle and, you know, have a drink. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, a wonderful way to, to support a local business, um, stay engaged in, in the long and wonderful history of whiskey. And, uh, and, and I, ours is one that truly handmade and made with a lot of love by, by people who really want to do everything right. So you'll, you'll never feel bad about a bottle of King's Cabin. Yes, absolutely. The, you know, the story uh, is, is in the bottle. You, you're, drinking, you're drinking history. It's great. It's a great yeah. way to learn and uh, uh, explore history with your friends. Um, I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show. Cool. Thanks for the opportunity. Glad. Yeah, no, thank you nice for doing this. You. This is this is great. I really appreciate it. And I, I'm going to, I got to look up the book. I've got to get my hands on that one. And hopefully when I come down to Brooklyn, I can get it signed. Yeah, yeah good. Sounds good. <laughs> well, All right, bye thanks, for Paul. now. Talk to you thank soon. you so much. Thank you for listening to that episode. I hope you enjoyed while cracking the seal of a bottle of Kings County, giving the cat some love, marching to the sea, ransoming Frederick, Maryland, or whenever you listen to podcasts. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes if so inclined. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook. And also check out the new website, okay? I can't stress enough how you gotta check this thing out. I'm very proud of it. If you want to get even more untold Civil War perks, become a patron on Patreon. If you don't like monthly subscriptions, but still wish to support the show, we also have a one-time donation link. All and any support is much appreciated. All links will be in the show notes. Well, bye for now, and I hope you tune in next time for our next episode.